0: all right we are back i want to talk about some science topics we've got a little bit of politics to do here um it remains to be seen whether the uh, the CEOs of Ford, Chrysler, and GM are going to convince the government uh, to give them a big handout. Of course, I'm saying that now. By the time the program's over, they may be cutting them a check. But I want to quote uh, from an email sent uh, by uh, Jerry and Millie, because some people don't know about this, and I think I think y'all should. Essay by Harvey Wasserman from the Common Dreams website. Bailout General Motors, the people who murdered our mass transit system. First, let them remake what they destroyed. GM responded to the 1970s gas crisis by handing over the American market to energy-efficient Toyotas and Hondas. GM met the rise of the hybrids with light trucks. GM built a small electric car, leased a pilot fleet to consumers who loved it, then forcibly confiscated and trashed them all. GM now wants to market a $40,000 electric Volt that looks like a cross between a Hummer and a Cadillac and will do nothing to meet the solar topian needs of a green-powered Earth. For this alone, GM's managers should never be allowed to make another car, let alone take our tax money to stay in business. But there's a trillion-dollar skeleton in GM's closet. This is the company that murdered our mass transit system. And the facts in this case are that a 1922 memo from GM President Alfred P. Sloan, yes, the same Alfred P. Sloan of the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, a big supporter of PBS, etc., established a unit aimed at dumping electrified mass transit in favor of gas-burning cars, trucks, and buses. At that time, just one American family in ten owned an automobile. But we did have 44,000 miles of passenger rail routes managed by 1,200 companies employing 300,000 Americans, who ran 15 billion annual trips, generating an income of $1 billion. According to government researcher Bradford Snell, virtually every city and town in America of more than 2,500 people had its own electric rail system. Meanwhile, GM was losing $65 million the year before, so Alfred P. Sloan enlisted Standard Oil, Phillips Petroleum, and glass and rubber companies, and an army of financiers and politicians to kill mass transit. This is a true story, ladies and gentlemen, and you, you know people old enough to remember the mass transit system, say, in the Bay Area. You could get on a trolley in San Francisco and go over the Bay Bridge into Oakland, not needing a car. People from LA remember how they had a, um, a trolley line that took you everywhere you needed to go in the LA Basin. Well, GM and Firestone and the oil companies uh, set out to buy up all of these uh, public utilities and tear out the tracks, which they did. We've talked about this uh, this notorious episode on this show in the past and, and I you know just think you, if you never if you don't know this story, you need to do some research on the web. It is remarkable. Of course, there are people that claim that, you know, conspiracies uh, they just they can never perpetuate, they're always found out, uh, etc. And, well, it's sort of true. In this case, the feds did find out what happened. And they leveled an antitrust prosecution against General Motors and slapped one heck of a fine on them for their bad behavior. Yes, GM had to cough up no less than $5,000 for their crimes. And, you know, it is remarkable. The, the Apparently, the R&D vice president of General Motors... Uh, is out trying to talk to radio stations. We were offered an interview with him through our uh, public affairs director here, Amber, and uh, I thought it would be sort of comical to have that interview, but uh, thought it would be counterproductive to actually let him bamboozle the public with this nonsense about how GM, which used to be the world's largest corporation until it was overtaken by Walmart, GM needs your tax dollars to do research and development as to what the American public wants to buy. I heard a Bay Area radio station talking about this the other day, noting that in the Bay Area, 87% of the vehicles purchased are foreign. Can it be that hard to ask people what it is they want in an automobile? Of course, when I go home to Fremont and occasionally borrow uh, my mom's truck, it's a Chevy, by the way, I'm inevitably struck by the fact that when I turn into the sun and pull down the visor, It knocks the rear-view mirror out of alignment. And no, it's not a fluke. Our Buick Skylark used to do the exact same thing. So here's my hint for the vice president in charge of research and development. In your cars that you make in Detroit from GM, when you put the visor in and the rear-view mirror in, make sure they don't collide. Those clever Japanese have apparently thoroughly mastered this. You, you might do well to follow their example. And you may have noticed that we did not do our usual stat of the day at the top of this program because I have several stats today we need to go into now. Writing for the Associated Press, David Crary uh, cited a recent study of uh, U.S. high school students, which reveals some of the following data. According to this survey of high school students, in the past year, 30% have stolen from a store. 64% have cheated on a test. Note, one fifth said they'd stolen something from a friend. 23% said they'd stolen something from a parent or other relative. 36% said they'd used the internet to plagiarize an assignment. That's up from 33% in 2004. And 42% of them said they sometimes lie to save money. 49% of the boys said that, only 36% of the girls. But here's the stat I like the best. Despite such responses, 93% of the students said they were satisfied with their personal ethics and character. And 77% affirmed that, quote, when it comes to doing what's right, I am better than most people I know, unquote. And that just has to be a bit depressing. So let's see if we can find some good news from the world of science, or at least a mixed bag from the world of science. And uh, and here's one. This comes from the... Seems too good to be true, but just might pan out file. According to Scientific American, electric fields can boost a car's gas mileage by up to 20%, thanks to a well-known effect in which electric fields reduce the viscosity of a liquid. The article from the October 1993 magazine, Electro-Rheological Fluids, and, uh, Apparently, reduced fuel viscosity means that much smaller droplets can be injected into the engine, leading to more efficient combustion. Apparently, investigators at Temple University thinned fuel by attaching an electrically charged tube to the diesel engine's fuel line near the fuel injector. And in road tests, the attachment, which consumed less than a tenth of a watt, increased highway fuel economy from 32 to 38 miles per gallon. The researchers uh, who described this boost in the November 19th Energy and Fuels journal expect the device will find uses in all kinds of internal combustion engines. And I also want to cite uh, an email we got from Kevin a couple weeks back thanking us for turning him on to The Economist magazine, which he now reads when he goes traveling. And he cited an article which he thought was quite interesting. I suppose we should mention it from the November 15th Economist which notes that peridotite, a mineral which is in the upper mantle of the Earth's crust, uh, occurs in some outcroppings. It apparently has deposits not too far down in the crust. Well, this rock is remarkable for its ability to absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So the proposal is they drill down into this rock and fracture it and absorb uh, 100,000 times more than the outcroppings currently do. Whether that can actually affect global warming is another matter, but it, it is it is interesting. Since I mentioned The Economist, I can't resist taking a shot at Newsweek here. Well, The Economist is doing its usual excellent science reporting last month. Newsweek is giving, uh, giving us a memo to the GOP about a way out of the wilderness by Karl Rove. Long essay from Karl Rove as to how the GOP, which had lost the election two weeks before, could come back. And a fantastic article from that well-known ecologist, Newt Gingrich, about how we can move to electric cars. And my personal favorite, a book review by Henry Kissinger about what Vietnam teaches us. Well, I think Vietnam could teach us a great deal. And, And one does certainly hope that Henry Kissinger, one of the main war criminals in that conflict, has learned a few things about it since then. It actually kind of gives me the creeps that Newsweek publishes this tripe. We, we eagerly await that essay from Pol Pot on how to increase efficiency in your home government. All right, new scientists had a pretty interesting little, uh, little blurb recently. Apparently, the secret to a long life is being conscientious. Researchers compared 20 previous studies of people and rated 8,900 people for their conscientiousness using a standard psychological survey, compared that to the age that they died. Study found that high achievers were most likely to live longest. They were described as individuals who were hardworking, resourceful, confident, and ambitious. Second in line were orderly people. And finally, traits of responsibility and reliability were also judged significant. Howard Friedman of the University of California at Riverside said that conscientious people do not live longer simply because they are boring or cautious, but does admit they tend to live lives that are more stable and less stressful. And speaking of uh, studies of our psyche, this one I like. The General Social Survey, an ongoing project of the National Science Foundation, discovered that happy people watch less TV than sad people. People who describe themselves as happy watched an average of 19 hours of television a week, while their unhappy counterparts watched 25 hours a week. And I must say, after catching about five minutes of Jerry Springer earlier this week, I'm sure this study is correct. Some more great news in science. Physicians in Europe, where they're doing a lot of stem cell research, not being restricted by the federal government like some nations we could mention, They were able to take some stem cells from a patient and in essence regrow part of her trachea. This of course has been the great promise of stem cells to recreate body parts for people. This is important in this case because apparently the trachea is unbelievably resistant to transplant. Apparently this patient's left bronchus, the tube connecting the windpipe to the left lung was so badly damaged by tuberculosis that she was unable to walk more than a few steps at a time. I said trachea a moment ago. Actually, it's just a little bit downstream from the trachea itself. Anyway, you're going to see more of this in the future, and it's a very, very good thing. And uh, speaking of science that used to be uh, sci-fi, well, uh, they've now recreated the genetic code of the mammoth, the hairy pachyderm that at one time uh, lived in uh, northern Siberia and also in North America. Apparently these beasts so went extinct about the end of the last Ice Age, some people suspect with a little bit of help from Homo sapiens. But there's been a lot of genetic material of mammoths that's been laying around for quite some time. Um, we said on this program that we thought that this was something that was very doable. Well, apparently they've now got the genetic code... And if they can take an Indian or African elephant egg and uh, mix some DNA in, it's entirely possible for the, the for the first time in 10,000 years, a uh, a woolly mammoth will again walk the earth. That's pretty cool stuff. Unfortunately, the woolly mammoth will be arriving just at the time global warming's kicking in. Well, there, there's an irony of history. But we shall see. I, I really think it'd be very cool to bring back, uh, you know, an extinct species. Of pachyderm. And wait, there's more. At least when it comes to where, where sci-fi turns into science. Astronomers have used a device to block out uh, the light from some of our nearby stars. And guess what? They're finding smaller and smaller planets. Actually being able for the first time to view them directly. Apparently the star Fomalo, which you can see tonight if you go out and look south about midnight, Actually, a little before midnight. It's really the only bright star in, the, in that area of the sky. It's about 25 light-years away, and using, uh, using indirect observations, they determined that it had a fairly large, meaning like three times the size of Jupiter, planet. But by using a coronagraph that blocks out the light from the star, they were able to view a much fainter planet, which gives off one billion times less light than the star. And if you missed that photograph, uh, check it out on the web. It's pretty cool. And in a pretty extensive test on uh, ginkgo, the substance uh, which is believed to help people suffering from dementia, or at least it was hoped that it would to prove to be a good remedy for Alzheimer's disease. Well, apparently not, said uh, Dr. Stephen Dukoski of the University of Virginia School of Medicine. We don't think it has a future as a powerful anti-dementia drug. Of course, this isn't the final word. More studies will be done uh, as to ginkgo's ability to enhance memory, and um, when they're in, we'll we'll talk about them. Well, actually, I'm looking at the Sacramento Bee here, November 14th. They had a wonderful photograph of uh, of uh, the dust ring that star- that surrounds the star Fomalhaut. Of course, uh, uh, in the midst of all that dust were a couple little dots that were the were the planets in question. But uh, on the same page is an article. Uh, Uh, asking whether millions of Americans, or maybe everybody in America, should be taking statins. And there's no doubt that uh, statins, which lower cholesterol, appear to be having a a, a good effect on the incidence of coronary heart disease in this country. But uh, I would like to point out that not everybody has coronary artery disease. And when optimists start telling you, "Well, my goodness, this drug is so good, everybody should be on it, beware. I heard supposedly intelligent people making that same claim about Prozac back in the 1990s. And no, it certainly wasn't true about Prozac either. But uh, still, that's mostly good news about statins, which I think is somewhat balanced by this uh, article from Liz Zabo in uh, USA Today, November 3rd. Noting that the number of children who take medicines for chronic diseases has jumped dramatically. Considered to be another troubling sign that many of the youngest Americans are struggling with obesity. Here's the best line I like from the article. Unless these children make major changes, such as eating healthier and exercising more, they could be facing a lifetime of illness. (laughs) What a great concept. Exercising more and eating healthier. I don't know. I I really do think that America is somewhat over-medicated in many areas. I think we hit on this, was it last week or the week before, but I think we need to do it again. Japanese researchers looked into this and determined that people who eat their meals in five minutes flat are three times more likely to get fat. They believe the speed at which we eat may be even more important than what we eat. Gobbling down meals bypasses the body's mechanism for telling you when you're full. So fast eaters wind up taking far more calories than they need. And I must confess. I am guilty of this. I tend to eat pretty quickly. But I do try to mitigate this with exercise. Still, if you're like me, you may need to wise up a bit and see if you can just slow down and, you know, start to feel full. And when you do, you can quit. Eat the stuff later. And final item here, at least for this segment, from the world of physics. Contrary to conventional baseball wisdom, according to physicists, the fastest way to reach base is through a headfirst slide. According to David Peters at Washington University, baseball managers who have discouraged head first slides because uh, they feel that the classic feet first slides are on one's butt are more efficient and less likely to cause hand or head injuries, which, which may remain true, I don't know. But uh, if a player is running toward the base, the analysis shows that his center of gravity is in the upper half of his body. If he slides, head first he pushes off with his legs and thrusts his center of gravity forward and downward but if the base runner slides feet first he's got to rock his center of gravity backwards and upwards disrupting his forward momentum and costing him crucial milliseconds i like this part of the article although statisticians have been unable to confirm this hypothesis in real game situations Retired stolen base champion Ricky Henderson agrees with Peters. If you slide when you're running straight up, he told Sports Illustrated.com, then you have a long distance to get to the ground. But the closer you get to the ground, the less time it'll take. So we think you ought to slide head first if you want to get there faster, but we're not taking any responsibilities for any possible added head injuries. And of course, as always, consult your doctor. I'm Douglas Everett, you're listening to Radio Parallax, and we got plenty more for our third segment, so don't go away.